0: Well, James, uh, James and I didn't even talk about what my intro was going to be, and I didn't know what he was going to do for the kids' message, but that was pretty fitting, uh, talking about warnings and uh, being careful. Um, a lot of ink has been spilled, or uh, I guess I don't know what the uh, digital metaphor these days is for ink being spilled. A lot of keys have been pounded, uh, in the last few years regarding uh, this idea of safetyism uh, and helicopter parenting. Uh, Maybe you've heard some of these things. Uh, It's this idea of of not allowing our kids to take any risks, and it's actually having some devastating effects uh, on younger generations. Um, Safetyism has kind of become this new moral code, uh, and its implications are pretty Pretty wide, not just on uh, physical safety, but uh, even on some of you college students may have may be aware of some of these things. But uh, speech on college campuses that is now considered violent, uh, and in this idea of of people being safe. Now, I'm not advocating that we are hurtful with our words, but there is this like overprotectiveness of not being not saying anything that could even be remotely offensive to anyone, and this has just permeated our entire culture in so many ways so there are a whole new set of standards that we have and this really in a lot of ways i think mirrors what we saw last week this idea of this external righteousness of the pharisees right there's this new moral code regarding safety that kind of permeates all aspects of our society And whether it's Jesus' disciples in the first century or Christians today trying to navigate these things in the 21st century, there is a sense that we are up against some cultural forces that we need to be very aware of. And the message that Jesus is clearly communicating here, beginning in chapter 12, is be careful. Be careful. But not because Jesus is the helicopter Messiah who is overly protective of his disciples and is scared for their physical safety. Jesus cuts through all the externals like he did in chapter 11 with the Pharisees on those who are more focused on external righteousness than internal righteousness. And he confronts his disciples and the crowds with an emphasis on soul safety being careful and paying attention to those things that are threats to our spiritual well-being. The reality for them and for us is that it is much easier to focus on the external dangers and seek to remedy those dangers with external solutions. But Jesus is calling those who would follow him to look at the internal dangers and to find solutions that work from the inside out like we talked about last week. This is getting at the heart of true discipleship. So let's go to our text for today, Luke chapter 12, verses one through 21, and see how these things unfold here. And I want us to pay special attention to the weight of these warnings, especially seen in a number of very stark contrasts. You'll you'll see them as we go through. There are at least 12 contrasts in these verses that that really jump out at us Luke chapter 12 verses 1 through 21 please pay attention to the reading of God's word in the meantime when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another he began to say to the disciples first beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who killed the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear fear him who after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that day, in in that very hour, what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning by your word. God, that by your grace, you would come, that you would confront our hearts, that you would help us to take heed, to read these warnings, and to respond accordingly. We pray that you would do that. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the context of kind of where we are in Luke is very important here. At the end of chapter 11, in that last section that we saw, Jesus was dining in the home of a Pharisee. Uh, He spoke to the Pharisees and to the lawyers who were gathered there. He spoke three different woes uh, to each group. He called them fools. We see that in our passage for this morning said that they were full of greed and wickedness. They clean the outside of the dish while the inside is filthy. Uh, Those things that are happening, the things that he was condemning were false teaching and leading other people astray. And what was their reaction? What was their reaction to Jesus when he came after them and when he confronted them on these things? We see it in verse 53 and 54 of chapter 11. As he went from there, as he's leaving, uh, and that comes right into this next section, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And I said last week, this word for catch is the word for hunt. They're actually coming after Jesus, right? They're trying to, to trap him, to catch him, actually probably seeking to take his life. So this is the situation that Jesus finds himself in, right? He's being, he's being pressed. He's being, they're trying to trap him. Then we come right into chapter 12 and all of a sudden all these crowds start gathering, right? All these people, many thousands of people, they're pressing in. So there's all this pressure. There's all this focus, and then Jesus is going to speak these four different sections, these four different warnings, and we're going to look at those. If you have your uh, worship guide on the back page, there is an empty space there if you're if you're taking notes. There are going to be four sections, and they're each going to be uh, different warnings. The first one is be careful what you believe and say. Be careful what you believe and say. Again, this is a crazy scene here. There are thousands of people pressing in. And Jesus turns to his disciples in the midst of this commotion, and he gives them this warning at the end of verse 1. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven or yeast is, is this little bit of substance, right, that goes into something, and it it goes throughout the whole thing, It a little... Says other in other places, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? You don't need a lot of yeast. You don't need like as much yeast as you need flour, right, to make bread. You just need a little bit of yeast and it gets in there and it makes the whole loaf rise. So it has this kind of invisible spreading effect. And that's what Jesus is saying is happening with the teaching of the Pharisees and that they should beware of that. So here the focus is... Beware of what goes in. And the teaching of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Matthew chapter 16, that's what Jesus equates it to. He's saying specifically the teaching of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. So what is hypocrisy? Well, it's a pretty, pretty standard, simple definition. It's saying one thing and doing another. And the word is actually related to, to play acting. It's, it's pretending to be something that you're not. There's kind of this idea of, of wearing a mask, right? Not, not the kinds that we're wearing, but it's it's putting on a mask and being fake, right? Being something that you're not. But there's a little bit more to it than that. It goes a little bit deeper than just this external fakeness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on his sermon on this passage, says, He said that hypocrisy is the desire to have the best of both worlds. It's an attitude towards Christianity, which believes in doing the minimum that is consistent with safety. He says it is the self-deceived person, not necessarily primarily trying to be something you're not, which is that common definition of hypocrisy. But he says it's being satisfied or being content with the minimum requirements. So Jesus say, is here saying, beware of trying to, to have just enough religion to be safe, but nothing more, right? And that's what the Pharisees wanted. They wanted to do their, their external things. They wanted to do just enough, right? But they didn't want to go beyond that. And they were actually accused by Jesus of, of causing other people to stumble and to be condemned along with them because of their hypocrisy. And really... When we look at this, it's not just an external thing. It's actually a heart problem, right? Hypocrisy is a heart issue. And the disciples needed this warning. And so do we sitting here today. Beware of what goes into your heart. Beware of what you believe. Beware of what you allow to go in. Because what goes in is going to come out, right? That's the next emphasis. Beware of what comes out. If the inside of the dish is dirty, what you get out from that dish is going to be dirty as well. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this warning here is clear. Be careful what you believe and be careful then what you say. Again, this here is not just a warning to the Pharisees, but to all those who would truly follow Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3 and look at the contrast there. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Verse 3, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. So this contrast between darkness darkness. And light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I love this imagery here. The literal, what it actually says in the Greek is what you have spoken into ears in private rooms. It's this picture, right? Of it is whispering, but it's literally like walking right up and, and speaking in someone's ear in this private room. Like you can't get any more secretive than that, right? But Jesus is saying, even those things that in a, you go and you lock yourself in a room with one other person and you whisper, so there's no way, unless the room is maybe bugged, right? There's no way anybody's going to hear it. Jesus says, even those things that you think you might get away with, they're going to be shouted from the housetops, right? They're going to be proclaimed from the housetops. But the contrast cannot be any more clear here. What you say, what you, those, those things that you say are going to be made known And I wonder, in our social media generation, how much this warning is even really heated anymore. Jesus could have said, whatever you tweet will be screenshotted and retweeted for the world to see. Or whatever you post on Facebook will reverberate throughout cyberspace, so be careful. I wonder, just, man, before you hit that send button, right? Like, think about this verse. Now, obviously, this isn't talking about social media use, but... Jesus saying, whatever you say, right? Even if it's just this thing you think is, oh, my friends will see this and nobody will ever see it again. Really? Again, this is all about the heart, isn't it? It's about a right understanding of who God is. You can't hide from God. He sees it all and he hears it all. This ought to give us a proper fear of God in terms of everything that we say and everything that we do, right? In some sense, every every word right, we've spoken, every careless word will be made known. Jesus says that in, in another place. So we are to be careful what we take in and we are to be careful what comes out as a result of what we take in, which is a pretty nice story transition here into our next section about fearing god be careful who you fear verses four through seven be careful who you fear again we see a stark contrast of who not to fear and who to fear verse four i tell you my friends do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do but i will warn you whom to fear Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Well, what a comfort these words have been to so many Christians throughout the centuries who have been called to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ. Have no fear of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. This is a book from J.C. Rowell called Light from Old Times, and it tracks the lives of many English uh, martyrs, English Protestants, who, who were burned at the stake during the reign of Bloody Mary in England. On October 16, 1555, Nicholas Rid- Ridley and Hugh Lattimore were burned at the stake together. They actually had gunpowder tied around their necks so that the, the job would be done uh, more quickly. And you can read all about uh, their accounts and, and things that they spoke and said to each other. Uh, it's amazing, their trust and their faith in the Lord. But listen to what Ridley said in a letter that he wrote from prison. It was one of the, probably the last letter that he wrote to his fellow prisoners. He said, Let us not then fear death, which can do us no harm. Otherwise, than for a moment to make the flesh to smart. For that our faith, which is securely fastened and fixed unto the word of God, telleth us that we shall soon after death, in peace, in the hands of God, in joy and solace, and that from death we shall go straight unto life. Then he says, for so long as we live here, we must pass through many tribulations before we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And now after that death has shot his bolt, all the Christian man's enemies have done what they can. And after that, they have no more to do. Farewell, dear brethren, farewell. And let us comfort our heart in all troubles and in death with the word of God. For heaven and earth shall perish, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. What would lead these men to willingly lay down their lives and not recant and not turn back to Rome at the threat of death? Was it not that they actually believed and lived out the realities of verses 6 and 7, even unto death? Jesus says, are, you, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Again, we see this great contrast here. The contrast between the value of human life and the value of sparrows. Now, it doesn't say God doesn't value sparrows. But they're just birds, right? They come and go. They die off easily. They're sold in the markets People eat them, right? You are of more value than many sparrows. And the hairs of your head are numbered. You are known by God. You are not forgotten by God. That is the truth that sustained these men as they went to the stake, men and women, right, who went to the stake for the sake of Christ, who were burned alive in this torturous reign of Mary. And it's easy to just gloss over this, right? And say, oh, that was a long time ago, right? Oh, this sounds nice. But I wonder how much this reality could have reshaped many of our conversations that have happened over the past several months and that no doubt will continue into the new year. Christian, I want to ask you, are you seriously more afraid of what some earthly political party or rulers could do to your body than you are of the God who has authority over your body and soul? This is a serious indictment against much of Christianity in America. And if we are more afraid of them or whatever, What does that say about what we really believe about God's care for us? If you are in Christ, you are remembered and valued by your heavenly Father. Let's start living like it. That's the exhortation from Jesus in the next section. Be careful how you respond. We talked about this. James brought this up in his outline a couple weeks ago. This whole emphasis here that Jesus has on kingdom living, right, is the response of Jesus' disciples. How are we to respond? Again, we have this very clear contrast. Acknowledging Jesus before men, and he'll acknowledge you before the angels of God on the day of judgment. Deny him before men, and you'll be denied on the day of judgment. Then we have this interesting statement by Jesus in verse 10 that has caused many a sleepless nights. Daryl Bach calls it one of Jesus' more enigmatic and debated sayings of his ministry. Jesus says in verse 10, "'Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven.'" So first of all, how can someone speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but not be forgiven by speaking blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now, most likely there's a reference here to Jesus' earthly ministry, speaking against him as the Son of Man in his earthly ministry, and and what he was doing. We have to obviously think about Peter who denied Jesus, right? Um, That did not me and Peter was not forgiven because he denied Jesus. We have to think about Paul who was persecuting Christians and persecuting the church, very obviously speaking out against Christ, and he was forgiven. So there's there's a difference between speaking against Jesus and his earthly ministry and then blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. When we think about this idea of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of different views, uh, and Daryl Bach in his commentary lays out at least five different views, and some of them are, are pretty nuanced, some of them overlap a little bit. Um, I think just from things I've heard in the past and from doing some study this week, I really think it's probably a combination of two different views, two of the more common views. The first one, which kind of seems the most obvious from the text, and we don't see it right here in this passage, um, but it's connected with Jesus casting out demons, which actually we saw last week in in chapter uh, 11. Or in two weeks ago, sorry, two weeks ago in chapter 11, not yesterday, like I said, when James preached last week, I said James preached yesterday, and he corrected me on that. Thank you, James. Two weeks ago, uh, when James preached on the casting out of demons in, in chapter 11, what was happening was they were attributing Jesus' work to Satan, right? They were saying Jesus does this by the power of Satan. Well, in the, in the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit verse, that's verse 10 here, comes right directly in that paragraph where they're attributing Jesus casting out demons to the work of Satan. So that comes in pretty close proximity here in Luke chapter 11, and it's right after them in Matthew and Mark. So the the most obvious connection between, about what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is this. It's attributing the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, to Satan. It's saying that this is what Jesus did here was actually a work of Satan. That would be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So that's one very common view. I think the text supports that. The second is more just kind of a a generalized um, idea, and, and Kent Hughes summarizes this well. He says, The blasphemy is not so much a matter of blasphemous language, but of a conscious, persistent, wicked rejection of the Spirit's witness. It is a setting of the mind against the Spirit of God. So this is this idea of this persistent rejection. And the key difference here is, um, again, when the word was spoken against Jesus, um, there was... Even after his, his resurrection, like Paul did, there was presumably an opportunity to still see the truth and repent. So that was a, that was a different scenario than what this ongoing, persistent uh, rejection of the Holy Spirit and blaspheming the Holy Spirit is. So that's all. There's, again, there's a lot of different views on that, but th- I think those are some of the most helpful ones. Um, the question that often comes up, and you've, you may, you've asked this yourself or you've heard someone ask this, is, should I be worried about this? Right? Should I be worried that I've committed this sin, that I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? And my answer to if you're thinking that, or for people who have asked me that, is is if you're asking the question, no, (laughs) right? If you're if you're concerned that you've done this, then you haven't done it. Because if you're concerned about it, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, convicting you. You wouldn't care if you were blaspheming the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in your life, if you're just some pagan, you know, whatever, just doing your thing and you like don't give a rip about any of this and you're not gonna ask yourself like, oh, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit because you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit constantly and you don't care. So if you've asked this question, it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. I think we actually see that in verses 11 and 12. And I think we need to see these verses in connection uh, with verse 10. Again, there's a contrast here. So verse 10, it's speaking against the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Jesus says then, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Right? You can't speak against the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit is in your most utter moment of weakness, right? The Holy Spirit is giving you what to say. I think this verse is is really like the comfort for people who are concerned about that. Jesus is saying, even in your worst moment, even as they're tying you to the stake, about to light the fire, and you're just terrified because you don't want to die, right? The Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. And I think there's a very, very stark contrast between that reality and the reality of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And this also ties back very nicely, I think, to verse four, where he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Do not fear. The Holy Spirit will give you the ability to not fear, right? To fear God and to not fear man. He will give you the ability to speak what you need to speak in that moment. Therefore, Christians, Let us be careful how we respond. Let us acknowledge our Lord before others and not be anxious how we should defend ourselves when we are called to give an account for the Holy Spirit will teach us in that very hour what we ought to say. And finally, be careful where you store your treasure. Next week's passage is tied very closely to this section, so I will be saying quite a bit more about this next week. But I do want to take a look at the significance of this encounter that Jesus has with this man from the crowd who makes this demand of him here in verse 13. He said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Which Jesus responds, man who made me a judge or an arbitrator, literally that word is divider. It's the same uh, word that the man asked him to, to divide. And he says, I'm not the divider. I'm not the one who is to do that. So he addresses the man, notice that. And then notice in verse 15, how it changes from the singular to the plural. He addresses this man. And then in verse 15, he turns and it says, he said to them, okay? So he turns from talking to this man who no doubt the crowds have, have heard and seen this little encounter with, with Jesus and this man. Now he turns to address the crowds. This is a lesson for all to hear. He said in verse 15 Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Take care or be on your guard for what? all covetousness or greed because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Or as the New Living Translation says, life is not measured by how much you own. It has zero impact on your value before your heavenly father or your eternal destiny. You're not going to die and stand before the Lord. God, one of the questions is not going to be, how much stuff did you have, right? Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And then Jesus tells this parable about how covetousness destroys the soul. He talks about a man whose land produced plentifully. And he said, I don't have anywhere to, to put all this stuff. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I'm going to sit back and I'm going to Relax what's the problem here? What's the problem with this man? It's not the blessing of a fruitful harvest. Which, it doesn't say it explicitly here, but clearly, that was from God, right? The fact that this man's land produced plentifully, plentifully was a blessing from God. So that's not the problem. It's not wrong to have a, a plentiful harvest, And I don't even know that the desire to store more goods is wrong in and of itself, right? He could have stored up his goods with a plan to distribute them generously, right? To store them up so that they didn't rot so that he could feed the community for the rest of the year, right? Think about Joseph back in Egypt, right? So it's not even the fact that he said, we got a problem here, right? All this food's going to rot if we don't do anything. Oh, well, no, Let's, let's build some more places to store it, right? That's wise. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is his heart disposition and his lack of acknowledgement of God's gracious provision. What does he do? He tears down his barns and builds bigger ones because why not, right? I've got the money. Might as well do it. And this action is a reflection of what is in his heart, which we see in this inner dialogue that he has. As he says to his soul in verse 19, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. There are three contrasts to notice in this section, in this parable. The first is covetousness versus contentment or generosity. The second one, which I think is my favorite, is many years versus this night, right? He said to his soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. And God said, this night, your soul is required of you. You think you're gonna live for years? Time's up, buddy, right? That contrast couldn't be any more clear. And then finally, in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This contrast between laying up treasure for yourself and being rich towards God. Let us beware lest we think this is only speaking to rich people as if we're talking about American standards. Like, oh, this is only for people who make like a million dollars a year, right? If you've been anywhere near a TV or an electronic device lately, and James talked about this in the kids, or in the confession of sin, which we didn't plan that either. <laughs> if you've been anywhere near an electronic device, check your email, especially this, this week coming up you've been bombarded, and you're about to be b- more bombarded by ads telling you why you need to tear down your barns and build bigger ones. It's called Black Friday, right? And Cyber Monday. But it's okay uh, to assuage our guilt over our greed and our covetousness. We've created Giving Tuesday. Seriously. (sighs) Okay, I'm not going to say anything more about that. Except where are our hearts? Are we rich toward God or are we laying up treasures for ourselves? Hear me. It's not wrong to have nice things. Right? We've all probably bought the junky, cheap item that breaks right away, right? Like, spend your money on a good, like, buy a Mac and not a PC. I mean, it's, it's really easy. I had to, sorry. But it's not wrong to have nice stuff. Right? It's not wrong to save for the future, to provide for future generations, to provide for your children, right? Jesus isn't against those things. But it is wrong and deadly for your soul to do those things without any thought of God or without any concern for other people. I want to recap these four warnings and look at how they are viewed in our world today. The first one, be careful what you believe and say. The world says, believe whatever you want. There's no danger. Believe in yourself. Believe in science, meaning like there is no God, right? Believe in anything other than Jesus, and you're good with most of the world. And say whatever you want. Shout your views from the rooftop. Say the stuff on Twitter and Facebook or whatever other platform you use. Be you. Be authentic, right? How dare anyone else tell you what you should believe or what you should say? Number two, be careful who you fear. No fear wasn't just the coolest t-shirt brand in the 90s, it is the mantra of the secular world. Live fearlessly while not believing and saying what anyone else wants you to. And I want to ask, how's that working out for us as a society? Third, be careful how you respond. Again, this is just a mockery to the world that, the suggestion that they will be judged for how they respond to Jesus. Who are we to say that there is only one way to God? Number four, be careful where you store your treasure. YOLO, baby, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 should be our response if there is no resurrection from the dead. But guess what? There is. There is a resurrection from the dead. That's precisely the problem with the world's response to all of these warnings. They don't acknowledge that there's a resurrection from the dead, that there's more to this life. That there's a judgment to come and a future hope and a future reality. The Messiah who was killed by those who rejected him and who ignored these warnings, he did not stay dead. He rose up from the grave and he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside all of those who would trust him by grace through faith. That is the good news for us, folks. That is the key to be able to heed these warnings. It's not us trying really hard to be good. This isn't Jesus putting the guilt trip on people. It is utterly impossible to keep these commands on our own. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. That's what the crowds were trying to do. Jesus coming and giving these warnings is good news Because when we trust in him and when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we can live a new life that's pleasing to God. We actually can do these things, and we ought to strive to do these things. We can believe and speak out of an overflow of the Spirit's work in our lives. We can fear God and not fear men because God cares for us. We can acknowledge Christ before others and not be anxious about how we should defend ourselves because the indwelling Holy Spirit will give us the words to speak. And we can be rich towards God and not consumed by covetous desires and lies that this world is constantly throwing in our face. This is liberating news for you if you are in Christ today. But it is a crushing weight if you are still living by your own power and not by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day of salvation do not tarry turn to christ and live let us pray father we come before you god we acknowledge you we acknowledge that you are the majestic and glorious one. We acknowledge your son, Jesus, who is our only hope, our only savior. We acknowledge the one who laid down his life so that we might live. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit who awakens us, who regenerates us, who gives us a new heart and who allows us to do all these things that we've just seen here this morning. Thank you for the power to to live the Christian life. We thank you that we can live it without fear. That we can honor you. That we can speak your name before others. God, that we can live in a way that is so contrary to the ways of the world. And is only by your grace. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us. We ask that you would equip us to live by faith as your children. Those who are cared for, those who have every hair on their head numbered, those who are of more value than many sparrows. God, may we truly sense your care for us, your love for your people and live in a way that is consistent with that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.